This episode of the original cast was recorded at Open Jar Studios. Located in the heart of the theater district, Open Jar Studios is Broadway's artistic home, having already supported the development of some of the largest Broadway shows, such as Moulin Rouge, MJ, and Funny Girl, just to name a few. The studio complex features two 4,000-square-foot studios with 22-foot-high ceilings, which provide the perfect space for Broadway rehearsals. In addition, the studios boast a number of different size studios, also suited perfectly for dance rehearsals, music rehearsals, podcasts, and even costume fittings, making it the most sought-after studio for rehearsals, classes, and more. Go to OpenJarStudios.com and book your studio space today. Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is an actor, playwright, director, has worked with the Muppets, but in my house he was known mainly as Mr. Larrabee. It's Austin Pendleton, everyone. Hi. Hey, Austin, how are you? Hi, Patrick, I'm fine. We're here at Open Jar Studios in the heart of Times Square. And uh, so... Yeah, you have this album of the last sweet days. Oh, of the last Isaac. sweet days of Isaac, yeah, right? Which yeah. is what we're here to talk about. Fulfillment of a prophecy. The last days of Isaac. Oh, the last sweet days of Isaac. with burning sun. Days of Isaac, which you brought up, uh, and I will say, honestly, had not heard of until you mentioned it, but uh, I have lots of thoughts now, having listened to it a bunch, but I will start at the beginning and just ask you, how did The Last Sweet Days of Isaac come into your life? Well, I knew Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, and I also met met the playwright Joanna Glass the same way. They were in New Haven. When I was an undergraduate at Yale, there was a group called the Dramat, and we did three shows a year, and the third one was was a new musical written by people who mm-hmm. um, who were who were undergraduates. And the first two years I was there, the musicals were by were by were by uh, Richard Maltby and David Shire. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. And the the final show that they wrote there was a show called Grand Tour. Mm-hmm. And they needed a woman to play the lead of a, a kind of a woman from the Midwest who goes to Europe and, mm-hmm. you know, all right. that. And as Richard described, into an audition one day when it came a young woman named Gretchen Cryer. Mm. Her husband was in the Divinity School at Yale. When he came into New York, he became a great, a great star of musical theater, right. David Cryer. Sure. Which is a form of divinity, in my opinion. <laughs> and, um, but she came in, and she auditioned. She got the part just like that. Mm-hmm. She played the lead in Grand Tour. And that's how I met... And I had a supporting role, and that's how I met Gretchen Cryer. So then, um, you know, a couple of years after that, I graduated. And she had moved into New York with her husband. And um, we kept up. Mm. And uh, she, 
she wrote this very funny play about a man and a woman in an elevator. <laughs> and in a high-rise building, mm-hmm. and the elevator gets stuck. And, and we had a reading of it one night, and it, it, was, it, it was terrific. Mm. Then she decided when, uh, to turn it into a musical with her collaborator, who was Nancy Ford, who was also at Yale, because her husband, Keith Charles, was his name, and a wonderful actor. And um, so we kept So after we had that reading of the play, then, then Gretchen and Nancy decided to turn it into a musical, and it was the last Sweet Days of Isaac. Mm-hmm. And it does a thing that no other show I've ever seen. It was... It was it was set in the year that it was written, which was 1970. I mean, the mm-hmm. year it was presented. Sure. And the first act, Isaac and 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 a young woman are trapped in the elevator, and they're in there. Well, he says, "This is my 33rd year." Sure. So they're in their early 30s, and they and they're they're and they're total strangers, and they're stuck in the elevator. Part two, and it was the height of the protests of the Vietnam War. Were the same were the same people, but if they were a much younger age, right? I haven't ever seen a show do that. Yeah, and they and so I was a protester, and she was too. It was brilliantly directed by Word Baker, who had directed the Fantastics, mm-hmm. and he also directed the Off Broadway revival of The Crucible that sort of put that play on the map in New York. The, oh, okay. The Crucible, the Arthur sure, Miller sure. play. Yeah, the original production had. Right, had, had encountered con- problems. Right, and not really gone anywhere. And then three or four years after that, he he word um, directed it off Broadway mm-hmm. in a very intimate setting of the very honest, straightforward, low key thing. And then suddenly, it suddenly was a classic. The Crucible is a great play. So he mm-hmm. was a director of some. Sure, I would he think. was a great director. Yeah. And, um, and 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 he was also very flamboyant. He was very entertaining. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And we, we started previews for the last sweet days. We had a week and a half of previews. We were in a we were in a theater uptown on East East Seventy Fourth Street called, I believe, perhaps the East Seventy Fourth Street Playhouse. It's like the East Side Playhouse. The East Side yeah. Playhouse, where I had earlier, about ten years before, appeared in Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm feeling so sad. <laughs> The great early '60s long title plays. Yeah, and I um, so so here I was returning now eight years later to the East Side Playhouse and in the last sweet days of Isaac, mm-hmm. directed by Word Baker and with Frederica Weber, and then Frederica left, and then was this surprise hit. Sure. And the first half of the preview, it was like a, a week and a half, the previews began on a Friday night, and it opened a week from that Monday. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the early previews, it sort of wasn't, the audience didn't, I mean, the audiences either actively hated it or they were kind of bewildered mm-hmm. and indifferent, slightly interested maybe. Oh, it's interesting, you know, like that. And word, you know, so you rehearse always during previews, sure. of course, because you learn so much in preview audiences. Word would come, 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 come down the aisle and leap up onto the stage and with his sombrero. And he would say things like, you expect me to give you your whole performance and all that. And then he would give these incredibly specific notes. Mm. He made little cuts. He didn't alter the text in any other way of either play. Sure. And 
all of a sudden it just began to work. Now the producers, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the lead producer was this marvelous woman named Haley Stoddard, but they had called they in the early early previews that look it just this thing ain't gonna fly. Sure. And I was not really a name there, and Frederico was not really a name at that point. We kind of were, but not mm-hmm. the kind where people will be around. Line up to see, yeah. And um, so they had finally they just they had called. They thought we'll open it so that it'll get whatever respectful attention it gets. And um, we won't have the humiliation of it closing during previews, you know, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And um, so they had called the people to come and take away the set after the opening night performance. <laughs> but as I say, that thanks to Word and his 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 directions that he gave us mm-hmm. that were so specific, we were so we were at the opening night party and the reviews started coming in. And they were great. Yeah. And suddenly the producer said, "Oh, well, we've got to call off the people <laughs> before they come in tomorrow morning Stop and take movers. down the yeah. set." <laughs> And it ran, it then it, so it opened like in, in the late winter, early spring. No, in the late winter. Mm-hmm. It, like a few months later, it won a bunch of Obies. Um, it ran for a year and a half. Yeah. And, and, and Frederica left after a few months, and she was replaced by Alice Platon, who was her understudy. And Alice Platon, a few years before that, had, sco- had done a Broadway debut of some kind of a musical, and she was hailed as this. You know, she got fabulous sure. attention from it. And then, and I never, I mean, I did not know her. And one day I showed up and there was Alice Platon in the lobby. I said, oh, mm-hmm. she introduced herself. I said, what are you doing here? She said, I'm, I'm going to be Frederica's understudy. And I thought, Alice Platon. <laughs> but she was out of work. And she mm-hmm. said, I thought, well... I like your work, I like Frederico's work, I like Word Baker's work, and I'm out of work, and I thought, I'll just watch the work process. Sure. I thought, this is impressive. Yeah. This is very impressive. So Alice took over three or four months after it opened, and then she played it for a year, because the whole Mm -hmm. run was a year and a half. Right. And, um, um... And you played Isaac the whole... I played Isaac the whole time. Mm -hmm. I think I missed two performances. I... And my understudy was Larry Moss, who's also an acting teacher, oh, mm-hmm. an acting teacher named Larry Moss, and a great actor. Yeah, I think he made he played a handful of performances. Um, the uh, the main cluster of performances he played was because my sister got married in, in our home in Warren, Ohio, in the living room. She oh wow! Husband Warren Flint, and so I went home. Had to go that. home. Yeah, yeah. And so. That whole set of performances performed very well by uh, Larry Moss, mm-hmm. and um, but but other than that, mm-hmm. and a couple times I got sick. I mean, sure, I, I played the whole time. It was a total of almost exactly five hundred performances. Yeah, the show ran. It was very exciting, and those things are particularly exciting because. Um, when you thought, oh, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, and then right. wham. Right, and then it just takes off. Yeah. 
and both Frederica and Alice, mm-hmm. and this is quite important, are jazz artists mm-hmm. on stage. I mean, I mean, they, I mean, they always adhere to the main line of the direction, of course, the curve of the story and sure. all that. But the but the moment to moment life has a kind of jazz in it. Mm-hmm. Each of those two artists. It's a very spontaneous kind of... Yeah, I had that. And, um, and the piece requires that, uh, particularly the one in the elevator. Sure. Yeah. Well, because it, it, it's such an interestingly structured, like you say, the first act being entirely in the elevator, and then the second act being not only in a totally different location with the two main characters in prisons... Yeah. But also younger versions of the selves, not yeah. older versions, which yeah. you would sort of anticipate. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Which is quite fascinating. Well, and a different structure even, because listening to the recording, it's very clear when Act 1 ends, and then Act 2 starts, and Act 2 has such a different musical style, and, and the chorus is much more involved. It yeah, has a whole... Right. Yeah. And the chorus was were three people up above us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the zeitgeist, right? But yeah, to Louise Heath and you know, some, some terrific people... And and John Long and I mean I'm some terrific people mm-hmm. and the director was Word Baker mm-hmm. who also encouraged a kind of a jazz mm-hmm. and when and and when I say that I don't mean you can you can do anything you feel like because Word was very alert to the structure mm-hmm. and um, he also I remember beginning in. In some of the rehearsals, maybe even into a couple of previews, at the beginning of the play, when the elevator gets stuck and, and I'm pounding the things sure. and all that, and he said, "Wait a minute, what are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm trying to." He said, "You're playing hysterical. Mm. Play what you would deliberately try to do in a situation like this." I remember I got that, there. and it's influenced me the rest of my life. That. Mm. Because I was, I was, I was getting off to a really bad start. Frederica was fine, but I, <laughs> but I was not. And Herbert Berghoff, who was one who, at whose studio I still teach, and who, mm-hmm. and who came to see it when he came to see Alice Plate, and he compared her to Lorette Taylor. Oh, you know, yeah, the yeah. class menagerie. Sure. Oh wow. So she, Alice, and, and Frederica, who, who's still with us. Um, very big time artists. Yeah, it's such an interesting kind of lightning in a bottle moment. It yeah. seems, which which you've I think in your career been a part of a few of those that are so. I mean, with sorry, I mean even oh poor oh dad poor dad. We talked with Barbara well, Harris. Well, dad being poor her, dad her was dad. a little different because it was it had played in Harvard. Mm-hmm. I was a Yale undergraduate. Arthur Coppett was a Harvard undergraduate, and play got put on by the Harvard undergraduates, and it was published. Even before it had its first professional production, oh, okay. I mean it was a big, sure. big deal. Okay, and I saw it, and I, and I read the play. I was a senior at Yale, an undergraduate, and I was in the dramatic, which is how mm-hmm. I met Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford and Joanna Glass and all these sure. wonderful women and all that. Um, um, I was. And I was at Grand Central in those days. Grand Central had a bookstore. I think it has, still has something kind of like mm-hmm. that. And I thought, i got to get something to read on the train, spring vacation. And Oh, Dad, Poor Dad was published. <laughs> and its only production... Was it Harvard? Had been at Harvard. 
by undergraduates, and, and Arthur was sure. an undergraduate. And I read it on the train, going back, and I thought, and there were three leading roles. There's mm-hmm. the mother, there's the boy who's all screwed up, right. and the girl he falls in love with. And I read it, and the, and the part of the son, he, he stuttered. And I, at that time, and I still have little traces mm-hmm. of it, you know, but I, um, but I had a big problem with it, and I went into acting to get away from it. I mm-hmm. found it would tend to pretty much kind of leave. Mm-hmm. Not always, but... Right. But, but often, that part of your brain helped often, it. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, I don't want this part. Right. I mean, because for, to play a part who stutters when you yourself are a stutter. Sure. Hmm. And, and, um, but I thought, on the other hand, this play is going to cause quite a stir. Sure. And um, so... Um, and was Jerry Robbins attached to direct at that point? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And, I, and then I read um, that it was going to be done, and it was going to start out in England, and then it was mm. going to come to Broadway with Stella Adler. Oh, okay. As the mother. Sure. And that wonderful, yeah, at the time, very young actor, Andrew Ray. Do you remember him at all? I don't think so, He'd no. been a kind of a child star. He was in some films, but mm-hmm. now he would, he'd would he played like the, the young guy in A Taste of Honey. Oh, okay. Which, which I had just seen, sure. which he was spectacular. With Joan Plowright and Angela he, Lansbury, that's a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and mm-hmm. he, was, he was incredible. And um, so then, so I graduated. Mm-hmm. And me and my brother and a friend of ours from Ohio, I'm from Warren, Ohio, uh, we went over to England. In fact, we spent the whole year, we were joined by other family members, by a lot of friends, the whole summer of 1961 in Europe. Oh, wow. And then I came back and and I moved into New York. But anyway, Mm -hmm. so we went over to London and I looked in the paper in London and there in Cambridge, England, trying out was Odette, Poor Dad, with Mm -hmm. Stella Adler and Andrew Ray. And as I said, I, I... I thought, actually, I was. I thought that was great because mm-hmm. I'd seen Andrew Ray just then in A Taste of Honey, and mm-hmm. he was off the wall, sure. superb. And I'd always wanted to see Stella Adler. I mean, her so course. much about her. Yeah. So we went up to Cambridge to see it, and it was unforgettable. Mm. I could. I still remember her performance. It was. It was so compelling. And and Andrew Ray was. In the very, sh- he only ended up having a few performances in it between Cambridge and, and in London, but I think he was better than I ever was. He was like, and and it was so. The the girl mm-hmm. was clearly an excellent actress, but the strange tonality of that play, but it didn't quite fit. But those mm-hmm. two performances, Andrew Ray and Stella Adler, were incredible. So then. I went to see it, and I could still describe to you Stella Adler's performance mm. in the play. It was so quiet, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know the play, but she has a twenty-minute speech in right. the middle of it, and she's pathological, right. the character. And it was so quiet and so focused, and so. Then me and my and my brother and our friend, we we flew down to the south of Spain. It was before the south of Spain was sort of the in place, so we got mm-hmm. a, we got some a, a little hotel on the Mediterranean, and I got a cab one afternoon, and I went up to the little town nearby, and uh, at siesta time, and I was reading the international edition of Time magazine, mm-hmm. 
And I read that, oh, dad had crashed and burned in London and was not coming to, mm. to Broadway or to New York. Sure. I couldn't believe it. Mm. And I asked Arthur about it years later. I said, what happened? Yeah. Because what I saw, right. I, I mean, I can still describe to you what I saw in Cambridge. Yeah. And, and um, um, he said, we got to London and Stella decided to change her performance completely. Mm. And she would, she would brook no. Hmm. And it just was a disaster. Wow. And I thought, yeah. Man, God. Yeah. And anyway, so, and then I got back to New York and I moved in an apartment with a whole lot of roommates I had, both from people I knew from Yale and people from Ohio. From you mm. know, I mean, we had two apartments that were right next to each other. And I'm like, 12 or so guys. <laughs> Tom Ligon was one of them, mm -hmm. you know, the actor. Mm -hmm. And Peter Beard, you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And Peter Beard was then seeing this beautiful young woman who was, uh, who was a model, a fashion model. Beautiful, beautiful woman in every way. Mm -hmm. First of all, just plain beautiful, but sure. also really soulful mm -hmm. kind of loving. And they were... They were sleeping on the floor in our apartment in, in a sleeping bag. One night, and Peter knew everybody mm -hmm. in the world. And one night at 4 a.m., the phone rings. And I stumbled from the, where I slept, and I went past the sleeping bag, and I said, Hello. Mm -hmm. um, he says, Hello. May I speak with Peter Beard? And I said, well, yeah, but he's, uh, who shall I say is called? <laughs> he said, Salvador Dali. <laughs> so I went and I shook Woke him Peter up. Yeah, away. Right. <laughs> I said, uh, Salvador Dali wants to talk <laughs> to you. I mean, I, I mean, God, he was somewhere in Europe, you know. It was a, but even the surrealist of, yeah, of, yeah, right. of, the, of the moment. It's, yeah. just, it's too perfect. <laughs> And so Peter dragged himself out of bed. He said, oh, Salvador. <laughs> and of course, he's bored to talk to him. Yeah, and he said, oh, what is it, Salvador? Right, no, well, I, no, I wish to speak to you. I said, he said, Salvador, it's four in the morning. Right. Yes, but I wish to speak. You know. <laughs> you know. So when you hung around, when you hung around I was Peter say. And Peter Breed was extraordinarily generous. Mm. He, I mean, he would, he would, if I wanted to see a show, he would secure tickets for it. Mm. And just hand them to me, and I mean, he and he, you, and when, and I was introduced to a lot of people, like for example, Salvador Dali. Sure, right. <laughs> and, apparently and, had your phone and number. And he was, uh, he was, um, he was a very generous guy mm -hmm. and very opinionated. Sure, that's funny. <laughs> and and uh, but so we had a lot of interesting roommates. You know? Sure. And a lot of those were had remained friends for all my life. Sure. So I so so I moved into New York, and there was, you know, I was reading. There was an article by Jerome Robbins in the Sunday New York Times in the magazine, mm -hmm. and I, of course, I'd seen West Side Story and I'd seen Gypsy, and I, and, um, I read that he was doing two things he'd never done. He was going to work off Broadway, and he was going to direct a play mm -hmm. instead of a musical, and that play was Odette Cornette. And I thought, 
<laughs> wow. And so and I tried to. And I went to agents' offices, mm. and they were very pleasant to me. They they weren't they weren't like getting right. Who are you? <laughs> they, they were well. We can. It's a leading role in a Joe Romick show, and you don't really have the credit. I right. I quoted things from reviews I'd gotten in college, which of course <laughs> didn't cut it. I was going to say. <laughs> Finally, however, I had a friend. A young actress who I'd, I'd known from um, from the Williamstown Theater. I'd been an apprentice, mm-hmm. and she'd been an apprentice. And someone else who had been an apprentice there is the woman who's now my wife, oh. Katina. <laughs> this this apprentice, her name, her name was Nancy Donahue, and she called me up, and she'd 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 acquired an agent. She said, "I'm talking to my agent today," and 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 we were just trading things we'd mm-hmm. heard about theater. We were, you know, it was a gossip session. But she said, um, and my agent says that they that he can't find the boy in Oded Porta. And she said, I said to my agent, I know who could do it. Long story short, mm-hmm. I got the part. Yeah. And I've been in New York for just a few months. But I, I auditioned quite well the first time. Mm-hmm. And then you have that thing called a callback, right. which I totally blew. And I thought, well, uh, and I went out with my friends that night, got so drunk, I, said, I, never, I never wanted the fucking part anyway. <laughs> Best news I've ever had. Right. So I blew it. <laughs> and the next day I got a call, the phone rang, it's Austin Pendleton there. This is he. <laughs> this is Jerome Robbins. Could you come over to my apartment? His apartment then was two blocks south of where my wife and I live now. Oh, wow. But I was over on the Upper West Side, and I, I went over, and he said, what happened? Hmm. I said, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And he liked that. Mm. He said, I'm just going to keep calling you back, because I really liked the first audition, and I cannot find someone. I'd... And some of the young actors he auditioned were incredible actors mm. but there was a certain quality it's a that. very particular part yeah yeah and then um so finally i went home for christmas and someone from the agency called me and said you've got to come into my he wants to see you again i said i don't want mm-hmm. it's in the callbacks i haven't been able to get anywhere near what i mm-hmm. I, I think i just wanted stay here for the month of January and chill with my friends in Warren, Ohio. The woman from the agency, a small agency, the Deborah Coleman agency. But the woman who worked there said, um, so I want to get this straight. I'm to call Jerome Robbins and tell him, you don't want to audition again for his play. You want to stay in Warren, Ohio and chill with your friends. I just want to make sure I have this right. I said, okay. Yeah. Oh, damn it. You know. Well, when you put it like that. Yeah, so I flew in the next time, went in the next morning in a grumpy mood, and I read with Barbara Harris. Mm. And it took off like mm-hmm. a rocket. And then for the part of them, and and Stel, he had offered it. Uh, um, he he uh, he told me in Brazil he had offered it to Stella Adler. Mm-hmm. She refused to go near the part again. Mm-hmm. And um, they, in fact, she never acted again. Oh, really? I didn't realize I that. Mean, I mean, she taught up at Yale. Sure, sure. She, but even when they would they would try to get her to be in a play at the drama school at Yale, mm-hmm. like Arcadena and the Seagull, in which she would have been definitive. Mm-hmm. She never acted again. Wow. This business is so full of heartbreaks for her. Sure. 
but she taught. Sure. And she and the acting teacher wars of the Yes. You heard what she said. What, what do you the day after Lee Strasberg died? No, I don't think she said to the class, ladies and gentlemen. There died yesterday a man who did more to destroy American acting. <laughs> the acting teacher wars in, in those years were brutal. It was brutal out there. It was brutal. Now, I studied with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff. Sure. And, and they, they, they didn't get themselves involved. They weren't mixed up in, in all yeah, that, in, sort, in of, that you know, sort of thing. And, um, <laughs> and but, oh man, yeah, right. yes, uh, uh. it can be brutal. But I want to ask you about Barbara Harris. I mean, obviously, she is one of my absolute favorite oh, performers of, of all time. Um, she she made the show work. Well, that's what I'd heard. And, and yeah. we had Joe Van Fleet, who was a great right. artist. Yeah, and and Joe was competitive. But she was never competitive with Barbara, mm. and it was trans. The reason we were running was Barbara. Was Bar- well, because that's what didn't she get cleared on a clear day off? Of well, that? what happened was um, we we had that thing again a week and a half of previews, just like. Mm-hmm. But it was the reverse of Isaac. A, a few years later, all through the previews, we were in heaven. You were killing we it, yeah. On a Monday night, and they sat there, mm-hmm. and. And it was pouring rain, and but and the cream of the theater crop was all there to see it, and it with a thud. Mm. The reviews were, I mean, they were respectful, but sure. but they it, they weren't. But hardly, yeah. But they were good for Barbara, and much more to the point. A couple of weeks later, it was announced that Richard Rogers and Alan J. Lerner, each of whom had just lost their collaborator, um, 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 Hammerstein, had right, died. and yeah. And and Lerner and Lloyd had split up over conflicts, I think, around probably Camelot. Right. And um, so each of them was looking. And so they decided to write a show together, Richard mm-hmm. Rogers and Alan J. Lerner. And then they announced about, well, like about a month or more into the run, that they didn't know what the show was going to be about, but it was going to be a vehicle for Barbara Harris. So on that, we sold out for a year. Gosh. Now, so <laughs> what happened then was that um, Alan J. Lerner was on those Kickapoo Joy Juice kind of drugs, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Right. Feelgood. Right. They got Jackie Kennedy through the, right. the tragedy that she endured. In. But... Um, they were very popular at the time, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And Barbara, was, she was saying... They keep giving me their albums. <laughs> I kind of like the one called Carousel. She'd never heard of any of their stuff. Well, because she was from Second City, right? She yeah, was an improv out of Chicago. Richard Rogers. Well, sure, that's true. Alan, right. You know, <laughs> institutions. Play, right. play this album. I like the one called called My Fair Lady. She right. told me. We, 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 you know, <laughs> and, and but. Uh, but finally, Richard Rodgers didn't want to work with Lane right. because he was high as a kite. Sure. You know? And uh, so, so Burton Lane came in right, on, and did on a clear day. Right. But Barbara hated fame. Mm-hmm. She did not want to be famous. That doesn't surprise me. She she is the only oh, and when she had that triumph in the apple tree, she was miserable. Right. And and. Um, and then, um, and then, then as soon as that contract was over, she she left the apple tree, and then she um, 
And then I would run into her, and she said, I'm taking some courses at Hunter College, like on all kinds of different subjects. Mm-hmm. And every time I pass Hunter College, I think about Barbara Harris. She was, she did, and um, then people were trying to get her to do other things. Mm-hmm. She did some films, just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. pretty remarkable. Well, she did the Odad Poor Dad film, and, uh, yeah. and yeah, you which know. Yeah, which I've never seen. Yeah. With and, Rosalind Russell and Robert Morris. Yeah. Yeah. Although I loved, I loved Robert Morris. Mm-hmm. I he was, but, but I, 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 the, 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 the play turned into be a very difficult experience for me, not because of anyone in it. Mm-hmm. But um, because I, eight times a week, and I was having trouble controlling the stuttering. Sometimes it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I spoke too fluently. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was terrible. Mm-hmm. So, and finally, after about a year, they fired me. And I was never so happy to get out of anything <laughs> in my life. And, uh, uh, but on a good night, I was good. And Joe Van Vliet and Barbara Harris were mm-hmm. fantastic. And um, and um, also there, there are a lot of smaller parts in the, in the play, like uh, uh, the bellboys, mm-hmm. and just about everybody who were the bellboys had had have gone on to careers. To be oh okay, I mean Jerry Robbins had an eye, and I yeah for certainly talent. you know he really did. Well, and that show, but I mean, I have to at least. Not directly, possibly, but pretty directly led to you getting Fiddler, I would imagine, also. Well, right? yeah. yeah, and so then, so when finally I, I, I got fired. <laughs> and, and, and the producer was this sweet man, T. Edwin Hamilton, who, who ran the Phoenix. And it, again, it was that theater on East 74th. Mm-hmm. And he called me in after a Sunday night performance and said, we're just going to have to let you go. And mm-hmm. he was so sweet. And I said, I tried to control my excitement. <laughs> <laughs> and then two weeks and so, but so I had two weeks to go and of course in those mm-hmm. two weeks I soared and I would say to T. Edward sure. well now look he yeah, said yeah, yeah but it's all going to happen he was right sure and and um, so then it was the, it was the days of the performances four shows over the weekend mm-hmm. you know, two on Saturday night Sunday matinee and Sunday night mm-hmm. so after the Sunday night show which was my last show and Sam Waterston was my replacement. Oh, okay, yeah. sure. And um, with whom I went to school, and um, um, I was, you know, all my friends came over. To, there was a bar, kind of a dive bar, up at Seventy Fourth and Second Avenue. Mm-hmm. There no, they don't have dive bars. They don't have dive bars anymore. anymore. No. And um, uh, but all my friends came. They, I mean, they didn't come to the show. They came to the. Mm-hmm, and to the bar, right? Thought, <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to be out of this. But the only thing is, uh, uh, Jerry Robbins is never going to hire me again. Sure. Eight months later, he asked me to audition for what became Fiddler on the Roof mm-hmm. for the part of Perchik. Oh, that's interesting. And I got very excited by that. Mm-hmm. And then. So he would audition people over and over. Right, and over. he was famous for that. There's yeah. a yeah, and there's an equity rule unofficially known as the Jerry Robbins rule. <laughs> after a certain number, of, you have to get paid to right to audition. Audition, yeah. And um, so uh, I auditioned for Perchy. I was so excited. And the final day, uh, he said, and and he was very excited. Jerry was about Perchy. Mm-hmm. And I and then the final day he said, while, while you're at it, would you just 
will you read the part of the tailor? Mm -hmm. And at that point, that was a very conventional role, and mm -hmm. so I kind of read for it. So I'd been in this thing called the Lincoln Center Training Program and all that, and, the, and I'd been accepted into the company, and we were about to give rehearsals for, I had a very tiny part, but in the Arthur Miller After the Fall. Oh, okay, sure. That, that, that Kazan was directing. Mm -hmm. My agent called up and said, well, you have to make up your mind, Jerry, because Austin's going to go into rehearsal in a small part, but still. Right. With Kazan. Arthur Miller, Elia Kazan, yeah, right. no, you know. Yeah. <laughs> a new play. Right. You know, yeah. And all that. And um, and Jerry said, okay, tell him I'll do it. And, and I, uh, I, want him to, I want him to play the tailor. And, and um, so she said, dear, mm -hmm. uh, he wants you in the show, so right. you shouldn't do the Lincoln Center. And um, uh, he wants you, I said, to play Perchick. Mm -hmm. I said, no, she, he wants you to play the, the tailor. I threw a tantrum. Mm. And she, she said, are, are you seriously telling me? <laughs> the same I was going to say, you keep you having know, the same conversation. Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Sure. <laughs> and then I was very grumpy. And then two weeks later, I'm running to a singing lesson mm -hmm. across uh Uh, Columbus Circle, and Jerry is running the other way, and we're both about to be late mm -hmm. to wherever he was going into me and wife's thing. He said, wait, since you're playing the part, we're going to change the whole part of Muddle. We're going to make him, at the beginning, he's he's a hopeless case. He's non-functional. Per you're perfect for it. <laughs> and then, then when he finds he has to stand up to Tevye, he finds mm -hmm. his strength. So I went to my senior teacher, a woman by the name Oral Whitty, right there on 7th Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I told her, she said, Austin, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So that's how the, the part, um, uh, the kind of character mm -hmm. the model is. Mm -hmm. that's Just because of that. It. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, you have to stand up to Zero Mistel, which had to be... <laughs> Oh, something he, of a <laughs> well, he you know he was controversial in the cast. I yeah, mean, he would look. I mean, I loved him mm. because I was still so uptight mm -hmm. as an actor. He he, he blew all that away. Mm. He just would do, literally do anything on stage, mm -hmm. and I mean, uh, and I wouldn't imitate that. First of all, I didn't have have the resources sure. to do that. Secondly, it would have been completely inappropriate. But the sense of the, he, he was so free, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I adored him. I think he kind of, kind of blew open a lot of, of doors and windows for me during the year that we played it. And of course, we almost closed out of town. Right, famously. Yeah, yeah. and then Jerry Robbins pulled it together. Mm-hmm. And then brought it into town, and it became Fiddler on the yeah, Roof, right. which is that. And the opening at party. Uh, And we were all so relieved, and it was the night, the days, as I say, when, when the critics all came to opening night. Right. And we were at the Rainbow Room. Okay. And, and we were like, we made it, we opened, and a guy was seen anxiously walking across the room. We said, where are you going? He said, I'm taking the Walter Kerr to Mr. Robbins, and he looked unhappy. We all fled. Sure. I remember pressing the button of the elevator <laughs> to get out of there. And, and Walter Kerr did not like that show. Right. Yeah. 
But, Famously, and the other reviews were respectful. It wasn't like it wasn't like South Pacific. Or, sure, or it, was, it wasn't like uh, I'm Fair Lady. Or they were respectful, and and Kerr was not even that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought, well, yeah, too bad. We worked so hard on it, mm-hmm. and then. The next day was a Wednesday, so it was a Wednesday matinee, so we came in the back door in the Imperial. Right. And Bert Conby comes to the dressing room, who's playing, he was, he was Perchett. Right. One reason I'm very happy I didn't get to play Perchett, because I would never would have met Bert Conby. Mm-hmm. So Bert comes in and says, have you been out front? The line is around the block. We said, but these aren't that kind of reviews. He said, right. no. Word of mouth, right? Overcomes the review, and then for a long time it was became the longest running. Yeah, it was the longest running show in Broadway history. So then, I mean, after that, you, you have a a more you have a more established career as an actor. Was it was Fiddler kind of a you had that and O'Dad, and you had you know the seal of approval of Jerry Robbins twice. Does that carry you know get your theater career? Really rolling. Yeah, and Jerry remained my friend for mm. the rest of his life. And he, he actually cast me in a couple of shows, but then he would always withdraw from shows before they went right. to rehearsal. And then in, <laughs> in those cases, when he would withdraw, I would withdraw. Mm. And uh, I'm, I remember one day, that about three or four years after Fiddler had closed, it was one day, in, one day in July or something, I'm coming up Madison Avenue. Coming down Madison Avenue is none other than Zero Monster. He's Austin. <laughs> I said, what? Well, and I hadn't seen him in a while. Sure. Austin, promise me one thing. I said, what? Well, promise me you'll never work with Robbins again. <laughs> oh, man. And I promised, I, I, right. I actually had already promised him I was going to work with him again. <laughs> but, but, but again, I pulled out of it when he pulled out. Sure. But so, 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 so I said to Zero Cut, I will never work. Of course. What Two else? weeks later, I read in the paper that there's a new show, a new musical, directed by Jerome Robbins, starring Zero, Zero Mustel. <laughs> and well, it's a show that has never seen, I mean, I think they finally years later did a workshop of it. What was it? It was a score by, by Stephen Sondheim and, 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 and Leonard Bernstein mm-hmm. called A Prey by Blecht. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think Jerry, way toward the end of his life, years later, they did a workshop of it in mm-hmm. Lincoln which he offered me a part in, obviously. Sure. Not the same part that he had offered me years yeah. and years before. And I was unable to go see it for some reason. Mm-hmm. I was unable to be in it, and then I was unable to go see it. I was out of town or something. And, I, and apparently they struggled with it. Yeah. And Jerry got all frustrated, and everybody got frustrated. And then that just so we've never there exists a music and the somewhere is by John Guare. Right. There exists a John Guare, Bernstein Sondheim show. Right. In the that world no one that has no one ever has ever seen. seen. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone heard. Yeah. Not, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It just doesn't. <laughs> there's so many of those things in the world. Yeah. But so when you getting back to. One thing that I was really interested in with listening to Last Sweet Days of Isaac is I knew Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford, like a lot of people, through I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road. That was the show that I I knew. Obviously, that was their biggest hit. 
Yeah. Um, again, despite bad reviews, that was a... And again, directed by Word Baker. And again, directed by Word Baker. That's correct. But so what was fascinating when you, when you recommended that you picked this show, and I thought, okay, well, listen to that. And then digging into their, their greater body of work with shows like Now is the Time for All Good Men and, of course, Shelter. Shelter. What I encountered was not what I was expecting. What I was, you know... Shelter is a really remarkable piece. And that out of town was directed by Word Baker. They should have stuck with him. <laughs> Honestly, but then every, they, yeah. every time he directed a show of theirs, it worked. Because well, yeah, he did the other. I don't know if he did. Now is the time for. Yeah, I think he did. Yes, do he, that. Did. he did. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and the and um and and with what happened with Shelter, I guess there had been a falling out when Shelter was out of town. But I think all oh, I could have been fixed. Sure. But I had just directed up at Williamstown. Uncle Vanya, a very mm. highly regarded production of Uncle Vanya, everybody flocked up to see it, and so. Gretchen and Nancy said, wait, you should direct Shelter. And I yes, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I blew it. Well, I don't... <laughs> no, I, no it, it wasn't like a fiasco. Sure. Uh, I mean, it actually... It was an incredibly some, complicated It got piece. some Tony nominations yeah. and all, all that, but it didn't come off. Sure. Well, but that was what I was struck by, was that you know, getting act together and taking it on the road is a pretty straightforward story, you know, yeah. evening of theater. It's, you know, very auto- yeah. autobiographical, obviously. But those those other three shows are really sort of intense, interesting examinations of technology in its relationship yeah, yeah, to right. existence yeah, right. in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. And they're so current. I mean, both Shelter and listening to Shelter Sh- and then listening to The Last Days of Isaac, they're, they're talking about things that right now yeah. we're, con- we're confronting. Shelter was ahead of its time. Way then, ahead of its still time. still ahead of its yes. time. Yes! <laughs> And I keep saying to Gretchen, find some hot young director and yeah. get this thing on. It's it's remarkable yeah. how how prescient a lot of that, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. De- down to like listening to songs like "I Want to Walk to San Francisco." Yeah, which is just this very simple sentiment about how technology makes things too easy. We have yeah. to get where we're going. Yeah, right. N- yeah. It takes too short a time to fly to San Francisco in a supersonic jet. That's 1970, and they're talking about supersonic jets and flying. I mean, but it's like talk yeah. about, let alone Zoom or any other kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, totally. But the one, the moment that that really took me aback listening to this, and it's so interesting on the recording uh, because it's uh, the only real moment of like true spoken word on the recording is um, touching the song "Touching Your Hand" in Act Two. Of, of- of, of Last Sweet Days of Isaac. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Where this is sort of like touching your hand is like touching your mind. This is, this oh, yeah, right. And then right. you have the little speech in the middle of touching your hand is like touching your mind. Hey, you know, I've had this crazy idea that frightens me. I mean, it's something we're coming to. Someday they may figure out a way to put a whole life on tape. Every aspect recorded completely the sights and the sounds and the smell and the feel. And then it would be possible to experience a tape of somebody else's life. But would that be like actually being with the person? I mean, if you can electrically reproduce a person, is that the person? And then you could put the tape in a little can, and you'd have a person in a can. (laughs) 
Touching your can is like touching your mind. And I really had to stop for a second and just be like, my God, like it was just, it, if you'd written that today, yes. it would be make absolute sense. It would make perfect sense. Not I can't imagine. Dated. Not at all. Yeah. So then I think the shelter, which takes that up a notch, that yes. whole concept. Totally. I can imagine to an audience in the early 70s, especially a Broadway audience, is well, like... Well, no, I didn't do a good job with it. I think, if they, had they stuck with word mm-hmm. and they returned to word, you know, right. after it, that... After that, for getting um, back together. Um, they, it would have... It would have run. I, 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 I mishandled it. But was that show always going? Was Shelter always going to Broadway? Was that the trajectory of Shelter? Yeah. Because and of the, the, the whole thing was Isaac had been this big. That's okay. Hit, that's what I kind of. And wondered. Shelter had gone well out of town in mm-hmm. Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And and um, um, so it was always on that yeah. trajectory. This and was, then I did this. Uncle Vanya, everybody likes it. Oh, Austin, and he, he was in Isaac and, and right, and knows them. And big it's, yeah. mistake. I was wondering how you got that job. That yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's such. A, it was your first Broadway play, or first Broadway show. Yeah. Period, and it's a musical, which is mm-hmm. even if a smaller musical has so many moving parts to it for yeah. a, a director. Yeah, it's, it's, but um, they called in Peter Hunt, my friend, mm. during the previews, and he, and he fixed it to a certain degree. Mm. Tony Walton, who was the designer right. of it. Um, Said you got to call in Jerry, and I was going to call in Jerry. Sure, I um, mean, and I, he would have pulled it right out of the fire. Well, he was the George Abbott of his day in that sense, like the the you know yeah the old yeah. Culture yeah. Well, he he was the acolyte of George Abbott, right? And he, if he was in trouble, you called <laughs> you yeah, called right, Jerry Robinson, right, right, exactly. and he comes and cleans you right up. And and Peter did some terrific stuff with it, mm-hmm. but Jerry would have he just would he would you know he he was. He was renowned for. He would save shows on the road, like mm-hmm. something happened on the way to the horse. Right. And uh, the, um, uh, with Barbara Streisand, you know, of well, Funny Girl. Or yeah, or, yeah, mm-hmm. Funny Girl, and a couple of other shows that yeah. he they were in trouble. Yeah. And he fixed them. Yep. He would have done that with Shelter. He just really had that ability to. Yeah. Come he, in and... he he could see. Yeah. Which is, an, I mean, I think you would agree. It's it's a it's a great, it's an amazing skill, but it's also it's so easy to come into a show that's in previews or whatever and notice problems that you can suggest. I mean, I'm sure you've yeah. gone in to see. No, show. but nobody ever did that like Jerry. Nobody, no, not to that extent, and yeah. also not with the. Uh, he you know. he always. Oh, and we got that awful Variety review of uh, in Detroit for Fiddler. I mean, mm. have you ever read that? No. Review? Oh, read it. It's, <laughs> it's it's first of all, it's short. Oh, okay. And when and in, in the old days of the out of town tryouts of the big musicals, the variety out of town reviews would go on for columns. Sure. Yeah, and if they would fix the, this was With a few paragraphs notes. long, and it basically said, "Forget it." Wow. Just forget it. And um, so, of course, you're rehearsing all the time during the day. So we were rehearsing all that day, and people crying in the dressing room. Sure. And and then after the show, there was a bar. Across, I, there was a. There's a bar. There was a bar across the street from the Fisher Theater in Detroit. That I don't know, but that's mm-hmm. where we had all go and get drunk afterwards. <laughs> so I and for some reason I arrived a bit late, and I went in, and, and the back was a lit area, and all the cast was deciding who was going to sleep with each other that night. Sure, because. Particularly if the show is in trouble on the road, everybody everyone needs company. Yeah, <laughs> and and um, but there in the in the in the darker part of the bar, in front at, at the actual bar, 
was Jerry Robbins all by himself with a martini, looking very calm. And uh, this review, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. read it. Sure, it's legendary. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so bad. It said there isn't, except for Zero Mostel. Yeah, there is not one thing about this show that is any good at all, including the rope, including the Robbins choreography. And the script and the score and everybody else in it and the last they name names. Oh. And except for Zero Mostel, it might run for two months in New York only because of Zero Mostel. But forget it. So I walk in the bar and they're in the, they're in the front in the dark at the, right. at the bar. is Jerry Robbins. And because I'd already done O'Dad with him, mm-hmm. I said, um, um. Jerry, I got up the nerve to say, Jerry, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And his response was, 10 things a day. Hmm. And that's what he did. And often when friends of mine are <coughs> in shows out of town and there's controver- you know, mm-hmm. troubles, sure. and, and they say, oh, oh come, come and see our opening night in... Uh, up in, say up in Boston, and my sister lives up in Boston, mm. and so I, I go. And, um, and the show isn't anything, anything resembling the trouble we were in with Fiddler, but the producers are saying to me, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to get rid of that. Mm. And I tell them the 10 things a day story. Mm. And that's what he did. Detail work for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Extensive detail work. We opened a few weeks later. Uh, uh, the next stop was in Washington, and the reviews were raves. Mm. And then all of a sudden, that and Parabon the Morel totally collapsed. Sure. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then we pulled it together, and we had a great opening night. And then Walter Kerr, Kerr did his thing, you know. right? But it finally, right? Obviously. The show has nine lives. Absolutely. Know. I mean, yeah. continued revivals and, you know, yeah. the recent Yiddish revival. I mean, it just keeps giving. Oh, the Yiddish one is wonderful. But when you appear on that album as well, singing Last the Sewing Machine, right? The cut song of... Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a whole other album that doesn't have anything sure. to do with the Yiddish. Right. Know. They put them out as a, a two-disc yeah. set. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But, yeah. So then how did you go from... You know, so you're an actor and a, and a director. When did you get into being a, a playwright and a and a writer? Was that something you'd well, also I'd always, always been well? In? As I say, um, the thing they did in the dramat every spring was a musical written mm-hmm. by it. And when I was a freshman and 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 sophomore, um, it was. It, uh, there were new shows by Maltby and Shire, mm-hmm. and and well, there's one song from the first one that that, that we did uh, when I was a freshman called Autumn, which still is recorded by mm-hmm. people. So I would, and so I would just ask Richard Mulby all the time, 
and we're still, I mean, we're, we're in a cabaret together now with Gretchen Cryer and, and, and with Barbara Blyer, so, mm, you know. Sure. And, and we're doing our cabarets. So, <clears throat> but I would ask him all about structure just mm. endlessly, and mm. he would analyze everything. And he would, I learned it, everything I learned about playwriting. But so, because I wanted to write the scripts for the musicals mm. after they graduated. And so I did. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but I learned sort of, I didn't ever take a class. Mm-hmm. I would talk to Richard Baltby. Sure. And, and he, would, he would point out the structure of other shows, and he would say, now, sit down and, and track what they mm-hmm. do. And yep. then also Jerry Robbins, mm-hmm. his sense of structure, mm-hmm. apart from all his other, just his talent, mm-hmm. um, but his sense of structure was unerring. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned it that way. And so since then, I've written a few plays. Sure. And scripts for a couple of other musicals, one with Alan Menken and David Spencer mm-hmm. called The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite a good show. But now with the advent of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and stuff, you can't put on a show like that. Like that, yeah. And that's not the... <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's an... Edgy play about Jews written by an edgy Jew. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean the novel. Right. Yes. And it, it's a brilliant novel, mm-hmm. and it has a score by Alan Menken mm-hmm. and David Spencer, and it's extraordinary. And if all this would calm down for a minute, maybe <laughs> could we could get it going. <laughs> I keep wanting to say, get it settled. We have a musical. <laughs> what greater cause could there be? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. And Alan Menken and I, we um, we uh, we opened in Philadelphia with the show back in 1987. Mm-hmm. And at the party, and it seemed to have gone very well. All to New York came down mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, this is this is going to work." Sure. But that night, the 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 guy who put in all the money withdrew it all. No. Oh. He was a guy uh, in real estate in Long Island. He'd never read the script <laughs> or the novel or anything, but he thought it's going. He's he's it's the the title character is going to be like him, and it's going to be this wonderful guy. Sure. But that's not what that's not that's yeah. not what Duddy Kravitz is. And he got so angry. Oh my god! At the opening party, he publicly announced he was withdrawing all, all his money, and that was all the money. Oh my god! So. So that's that. So we had a, so, and they booked the Lundfontaine Theater and everything sure. was all over. But so we, we we hadn't we had a week or two to run yet in mm-hmm. um, in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, so so the guy who wrote the novel, this wonderful guy, mm-hmm. Mordecai Richler, he and I would go. I, he said, well, "Let's just keep working on the script. Some mm-hmm. sooner or later, it'll be done again." Sure. So he and I would go out to a bar after we'd, we'd see a performance and go out and we would write, and we wrote all our new ideas for dialogue down on, on cocktail napkins. <laughs> and then, and I would carry them around and then I, I would sneeze and I'd forget. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, then um, whole evening's work. <laughs> yeah, but he was heaven, Mordecai Richler. He was so funny, and so he, mm-hmm. 
this kind of wit. <laughs> oh, God, he was funny. And, um, then 28 years later, we did it again in Montreal. Mm. And it got... And the guy who wrote, the, who, who was the lyricist, you know, David Spencer, he, he had another crack at the book, and I think he solved the main problem in the script, which is the ending. Mm. The ending left... You don't want to go out of a musical feeling like you've just had the awful breakup of an affair. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of what the ending... And he found a way to get the point of the ending mm-hmm. without... Without the tone. And so we did it in Montreal, and it really worked. Mm. And, and, and the widow of Mordecai came and pronounced well on it sure. in, in, in Montreal. But again, uh, and it's a gorgeous score, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. Alan Menken. <coughs> but Alan had told me, after we opened in Philadelphia, we were out in the lobby one night during the first act. It had opened, the reviews, which were good, had come out and all that. And we knew we were going to close because all the money was right. Alan said to me, you know something? And I said, what? He said, you don't, you don't know your own power. Hmm. It was a huge moment. He said it very simply. Mm -hmm. 28 years later in Montreal, I reminded him he said that. He Mm -hmm. said, did I say that? (laughs) That was smart of me. I said, well, you, you know, you changed my life. I mean, mm. Other than that, it sure it was nothing, effect. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, what did that do for you when he said that? The it word? just it it was very gently put. It was asking, but it was in a very gentle, kind, supportive way. It was, and I don't know if if, if this was the subtext mm. of it, but but what it, the subtext to me became Austin. Take responsibility for it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It had a huge. I, I remember where we were sitting in that lobby, <laughs> and, and the first act was going on, and sure. you know, and all that. And we were about to close because, sure. <laughs> right, because there's no money. <laughs> the money was, you know, right somewhere, you know, Long Island. Yeah, Long Island. <laughs> yeah exactly. And and um, um, the. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just that, I mean the moments you remember. Sure, the things that people say that yeah, just sort of. Yeah. That, and then Alan came up to Montreal. He wasn't able to come to the rehearsals in Montreal, but mm-hmm. he came up and and on our dark night when we were after the technical mm-hmm. before the previews began, he 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 gave a piano recital in um, in the theater, mm-hmm. and he played all his own own music, but with all these variations mm. went on for an hour songs that the public knew and also songs from the show sure and and just with endless pianistic improvisations mm-hmm. essentially and it was staggering i mean what a musician he mm-hmm. oh yeah and a very kind man yeah as you can see yeah when I seen it recently borne out that he I mean, he's been done doing a lot of philanthropic work and educational stuff. Oh yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he, he yeah. means business. I oh mean, sure, he's he, he's he's uh, yeah he's he's a he's a great soul. Yeah, 
Well, and actually, just reminded me one thing I didn't ask you about for because it, it, it connected with Stephen Schwartz and how I could have worked together is that the record "Last Sweet Days of Isaac" was produced by Stephen Schwartz. Yes. Talk about be pre Godspell Stephen Schwartz or, yeah. or, or, or like right before yeah, Godspell. It, yeah, it was, it was just before Godspell. just before Godspell. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it was such a <laughs> piece of kismet that was in that uh, in that room. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, he's a, he's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He he's another. Uh, um, there's a lot of philanthropy and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and his work with the Dramatics Guild, obviously, I mean, is, is, as the president of that for so long, has been. Oh, has oh been yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. He's just an absolutely wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss as we wind down if I didn't ask because my my audience will want to know about your experience working with uh, one of the great actors of our time, Kermit the Frog. And uh, <laughs> well, I was so intimidated. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, I work with very, very great artists, but Kermit the Frog. Sure. You know, icon of our time. <laughs> and will you? And but also to be in seriousness for that in that for you, I mean, you and Charles Durning as a sort of double act in that in that film. Charles Durning, I'd met, he was on the road in Fiddler on the Roof when we were talking mm. out. He played a Catholic priest and he was cut in, and the part was cut in, mm-hmm. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. But before his part, we would go out every night and talk and talk into mm-hmm. the night. And then over the years after that, we would, you know, and we ended up in a, in a lot of uh, things together. A whole, a whole lot of movies. And the front page, right, was the one you did? Yeah, the yeah. front page, and, mm-hmm. and three or four others. But mm-hmm. but it was only in that movie, the Muppet movie, where we were together all the time. Yeah, the whole movie, basically, yeah. you two were together. And, and uh, we would um, and we would have night scenes where we would be driving around on the lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm the chauffeur. And right. And um, um, we would do, we, we just told everything, each other, everything about our lives. And sure. That kind of thing. And then I called him from the airport in L.A. because the shoot of the of of the movie was hard. There was an edgy set. Mm. What was it? Was because of financing or because no of, Jim Frawley, who no oh, the director who, who mm. was going through a very bad time. Mm. And then we had to loop whole sections of the movie because sure. he he had he had Charlie overplaying so much. Mm. But then and, and so I had to loop almost my whole part. But he Jim Frawley but. Uh, you know, um, six months after the shoot was a different man because mm. because looping is so hard. And yeah, Jim Frawley was fantastic, and whatever he was going through, mm-hmm. he had, he had processed. You know. yeah. But anyway, so when we got through with the shoot, I was at the Air- L.A. airport, and I said, "It's been so great having all this time with you, mm-hmm. Charlie." And he said, "Well, I'm about to be in the Pakula film. I, uh, you got to be in the Pakula film." <laughs> I said, what Pakula film? <laughs> he said, get, get on the plane, get off the plane in New York, call your agent, say you've got to be in the Pakula movie. Alan Pakula was starting mm. over. Right. All, all because... Because I, you just called him I on... I called Charlie just to say... <laughs> just yeah. to say hello. Yeah, yeah. and thank you. That's so yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It is, I mean, it has to be... What are the roles I would say you'd probably most recognized for by, by most people? Would you that in obviously my cousin Vinny, oh, oh, which is I'm obviously playing another stammerer, which oh, yeah, which, oh god, <laughs> oh. 
That offended so many people. Oh, did it really? And I felt bad that it did. Mm. Yeah, but it's a brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's a brilliant movie. I mean, it's a classic. Yeah. And and uh, you did it as a favor. Is that correct to the director? I did indeed. <laughs> and I, I when when I um, the the director is a, he still is a very good friend of mine, Jonathan Lynn. And I and I and, and he sent me this script and I read it. It's all written out as as a script. Yeah. I said, you. You can't be serious. Well, because he knew you had a stammer, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that I had it earlier. Earlier, in, yeah. Like, no way am I revisiting this. <laughs> so, and I was in Chicago, and I came home, and, and Katina, my wife, said, um, uh, Jonathan's going to take out for dinner. And I said, I know what he's going to do. He's not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. But there was a Greek restaurant in just three blocks from where, where Katina and I still live, and around the corner from where Jay Robbins lived. And... There was a Greek restaurant then. Jonathan took me out a couple bottles of Ritzina's exquisite Greek food. I said yes. <laughs> but then um, that um, caused real problems in my career mm. because um, after that, um, a director said, "Well." This is the authentic you, and I said, mm. "This is the authentic me from thirty years ago." Sure. No, even more than that, mm-hmm. and and it it's um, um, I thought the movie was going to be kind of a cult favorite. Mm-hmm. It, it's a brilliant script, and right. it's, it's a brilliantly made movie. It's it's like having been in Gone with the Wind, being in that movie, you know? <laughs> and it, it um, uh, and um, so um, the only parts I was I was then then. Only and the thing that that all these directors would say was when they would say I really loved you when I would go for an audition mm-hmm. and a meeting and they'd, if they'd say I love you and my cousin when it was code for yeah this part is fluent I'm not going to cast you mm-hmm. so the only ones who came to my help mm-hmm. came to the rescue were I did three more films for Jonathan including one that is at least as good a movie and um, that's my cousin really called Trial and Error mm-hmm. oh that's a good movie mm-hmm. and I played the judge and mm-hmm. all that and, and Rip Torn and that wonderful woman Charlene Theroux and, Charles, yeah yeah, and some wonderful people and, oh and Rip Torn sure brilliant <laughs> you know and all that and, and um, so I did three films for him and so he hired me and and um, and 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 a woman who had become a friend of mine in the meantime, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, mm-hmm. hired me in a film called The Associate. Oh, sure. And Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. cast me. So I got by got, with right. a little help oh, that's with my friends. In, in, um, the mirror has two faces. Right? Yes. yes. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yes, yes, so yes. the only people who hired me sure. after that was were people who were my friends, like right. Jonathan Lynn. Sure. But also who had gotten you into this mess? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And um, and then and and all the films I made, a couple for Jonathan and the one with Whoopi the associate, and the mm-hmm. one with Barbara the married, they all sort of opened at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I I was in L.A. and I was happening happened to pass by a theater which was playing all all those movies and a lot of them were these movies. Sure. And some young people came to me and said, "Oh, you're really great. Why aren't you in the movies anymore?" And I said. <laughs> Look up there, and they, uh, you know. They, yeah. there, there are like four or five of them right there. Right. They said, "Yo, we don't want to see any of those." 
I mean, I love Jonathan Lynn, obviously. Clue yeah, alone will get you. And he's still, he, he and Rita, his wife and I, mm-hmm. we, and, and they live over here now, I first met him. Mm-hmm. I met him because I was in London. When he did Yes Minister, right? And Yes Prime Minister, is that he? Well, yeah. I was in London, it, that same trip I told you about. Mm-hmm. And I, I was waiting for my brother and our friend to come over. I thought, I, you know, I, I go to London um, a little early just mm-hmm. to hang around. And I got kind of lonely one Wednesday afternoon. I'm passing the theater where Filler on the Roof is playing. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go. And it was just as the matinee was ending. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to go back and introduce myself to whoever is playing my part. Mm-hmm. That's how our friendship. And that was Jonathan Lynn? If I'd passed it on a Tuesday. It wouldn't have. Man. That's what it is, though, right? I mean, that's. That's the way it is. Yeah. It's. Luck is a huge component. So he said, it was a Wednesday matinee. He said, oh, you must come back to my flat. So him and Rita. Mm -hmm. And we. And so then he said, of course, you'll come to see the show. And I went to see it that night. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was good. Mm -hmm. With the Jerome Robbins. Production, was, you mm-hmm. know, the actors were very different, but they were good. And Jonathan, of course, was terrific. And then I went back. It was August of 1967. Jonathan and Rita and I sat up all night mm-hmm. talking. And then she drove me back to to the B and B that I was staying in. And mm-hmm. ever since then, you've been yeah. we've been inseparable. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's such a great story and friendship to have all because you like you say happen to be walking past a theater yeah. that's doing the show you were in once probably if I'd been passed on a Tuesday I probably would have said oh I, I should come around sometime sometime and, and, yeah you know but I wouldn't have. we wouldn't have done it yeah yeah, yeah. Who, who knows yeah uh I wanted to ask you also about, speaking of your writing, about Orson Shadow a little bit. Um, it's a, sh- a show of yours I very much enjoy. Oh, um, Mr. David Cromer directed that. Yeah, I, fa- yeah. I, first, I encountered it first through um, LA Theater Works production, the audio production. Oh, that was a good production, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I very much enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the Cromer one, which was the original, he mm-hmm. first directed it at Steppenwolf, and mm-hmm. it, it went well, so then. And um, the. And it was reviewed in the Times when it was in Chicago. I think, mm-hmm. it, was, I think it was Ben Brantley, mm-hmm. who and who was very perceptive about. It. He said the part should be played by actors the audience doesn't know, mm-hmm. and it should be done in a small theater so you feel you're in the room mm-hmm. with Orson Welles and Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. The idea was given to me by Judith Aubergenois, whose husband oh Renee was, was mm-hmm. Renee, mm-hmm. and she wanted me to write the part of Olivier. She said. I was out in L.A. She called me over there house one morning for breakfast. In fact, we were making trial and error. Oh, okay. And, I, and one day I was free, and she invited me over for breakfast and said, okay, I have one thing to say to you. In 1960, Orson Welles directed Olivier and Sir Lawrence Olivier in Rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. And by the time it opened, Orson was no longer the director. Would you write a play about it? And I thought, I can't write about these people. Mm. I mean... How, how, where do you start? Well, and you knew, had worked with Orson Welles, I mean, in, yeah, in Catch-22. Yeah, and he had been yeah. a pill. <laughs> he had been a very bad boy. Right. And I've made, some, I've heard some rather snide remarks about him. Mm. 
And then after I made those Steiner marks, I came back to New York. It was the years of the revival houses, mm-hmm. and I saw some of the other movies other than Citizen Kane. Because mm-hmm. the, the thing on hand was, it was Citizen Kane, yeah. and then it all... And I thought, well, wait, yeah. these are brilliant yeah. films. I mean, his... So I always felt a little guilty. So when Judith said this, it's... Now, this is after Orson had died. Right. But maybe I can make it up to mm-hmm. him. Well, because Chimes of Midnight being such a huge component of that play, of of your play, and then, you know, obviously is a great success of his, and luckily is also, when I was young and looking for that movie, you couldn't find it anywhere. Now, luckily, it's on the Criterion Collection. It's very available. A Touch of Evil. Oh, A Touch of Evil. Yeah. And The Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah. And The Strange. I mean, even the lesser known ones, like The Stranger and sort of those, they're just, they're they're really... He was a great, great artist. But he, and just for my audience to know, he also essentially... For modern people, invented what we now call the video essay with a movie called F, F for Fake. Oh, yeah. Which is just a documentary sort of presentation, but its style, if you watch that movie, in every video essay you watch on YouTube Absolutely. is based on he, F for Fake. He was yeah. a very. He was so ahead of his time as an yeah, innovative yeah, artist, yeah. Yeah. But also, as you point out in the play, something of a self sabotage. So, yeah, oh. <laughs> He wrote the book, I tell you. If you want to learn how to self-sabotage, yes. yeah, just, yeah. And, and, um, but um, now it's going to be done again, Orson Chow. Oh, is it? At Theater for the New City by, by a group of actors I know very well called Oberon. And mm. during the COVID, and I've known these actors for years, mm. they did it on Zoom. Mm. And it was as good as, almost, it mm. was in a league with the original production. Okay. And, and uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of productions of it, but... It was in the league. Mm-hmm. It, you could, it was fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. So, and so now they're going to do it. And that's I great. Can't, and they, they've offered it to quite, a, to quite a few directors, and all of whom are busy or whatever. Sure. So they said to me, okay, you have to direct it. <laughs> so I said, well, I would never, ever direct the original production mm-hmm. of a play of mine. But of your maybe, own and, But now I've seen it directed by David Cromer. Mm-hmm. And um, and I um, so I kind of know what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and the script is sort of more set, so you don't have to worry yeah, about being a writer right, yeah, and a director yeah. as much and as so, you would. Yeah. Um, um, oh, that'll be wonderful. So that's that'll that'll show up down in theater for the new city in early March. Oh, that's wonderful. It was that was it was it originally at Barrow Street when it was in off yes. Broadway? Yeah, because I. No, I had a play in the New York Fringe Festival, I think right after it had closed, and we, at the Barrow Street, and we had, there were just, po- you know, posters, and the postcards were all still around. Yeah. So sort of be, yeah, so that's where I first heard about it, and being a fan of yours, it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know you wrote. So that was, pick that up, that postcard, tuck I that in. I also wrote a play called Uncle Bob, mm-hmm. which is, remains controversial. Oh, really? It's, it's still the most, well, first of all, it's only two characters. Mm-hmm. Well, that was when Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in that he was in production. A, he mm. was in a revival. Oh, in a revival. Yeah. Okay. And um, um, it's, it's still done And when it was done. So a big fan of it was Jerome Robbins. He would send people to it. And mm. that's how I basically got to know Steve Sondheim. Oh, okay. He became an Uncle Bob fan. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, um, and, the, um, and so, um, uh, but, it, you know, People have violent reactions to it. Either either way. Wow. And it and so and so Jerry sent a guy who a French playwright to see it, and that guy wrote to me at HB mm-hmm. studio and said, "I will I'll translate your play for free oh, wow. into French." 
So then I wasn't able to, uh, to go overseas in France because mm. of scheduling or whatever. But I, but I, um, uh, they sent me a tape of it. It's a superb uh, uh, production. Oh wow! And uh, and so then the uh, the the guy who translated he he came back into town a few months after it had been done. I said, "How did it go?" He said, "A woman stood up in a talk back and said, this is the work of Satan.'" I think it's the best review I've ever got. It, it was not an approving review. Sure. But I mean, but Satan. The, well, but the passion of it. I yeah. Mean, that's the, yeah. The, you know, Satan. This is, and actually, speaking of Sondheim, it's always something I think Sondheim had said that, like, you want your review, good or bad, to be, yeah. you invoked a response. Yeah, passion. right. You yeah. don't want to be ignored. Or yeah, be right, tepid. right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that's, yes, I, yeah. you got through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, she'll never forget that show, yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, can, uh, um, um, I told that to Sondheim. And oh, yeah. He, 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 yeah right. <laughs> he would love that. Yeah, so yeah, like, oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Um, oh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for well, doing this. I have to ask, before we end, my last question I ask all my guests is, what is your favorite song from the last Sweet Days of Isaac? Do you have one? Do you want the... Let me to refer to. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't even ever thought of that. Well, well, the title song mm. is fantastic. I think. Yeah. Um, oh, the one, um, the one from from the Liebestod. Yeah. Oh, sure. Liebestod, Liebestod, yeah. Liebestod. Yeah. Yeah. Who is Robert? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's my favorite. That's your favorite song. Yeah, yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. So right now you're doing Tennessee Williams? Is that what you said? Yeah, The Night of the Iguana. Oh, okay. At, um, directed by no less than Emily Mann. Mm. And I just already did a play with her out in New Brunswick called The Pianist that she mm. taken from the memoir. It's not an adaptation of the Polanski film. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's, she went all the way back, back to, to the, the memoir mm-hmm. and fashioned a play out of it. And now mm-hmm. she's fantastic, Emily Mann. Sure. And so now, so I'm doing two shows in a row with her, and um, uh, the Night of the Iguana. Mm. Um, how well do you know the Night? Of I the don't know the Night of the Iguana very well at all. I don't know a lot of Tennessee Williams. He's kind of a hole in my uh, in my theater knowledge. Get on the case. Yes. Yeah, I, right. yeah. I mean, I know the I know the the hits obviously, and I also know um, because of the Sidney Lumet film. But what is that called? Oh. Brando is in the film. Then the film has a di- oh, the, oh, the fugitive, the kind. fugitive kind. Yeah, yeah which is a, that's not the name of the play though, is it? The, the play is Orpheus Descending. Okay, that's it. Yeah, so I know that. I directed yeah. Orpheus Descending once at Williamstown with Olympia Dukakis. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah. That was quite that's something. Fun. Yeah. And that's I mean, all the plays that they say aren't as good as his best plays are mm-hmm. all as good as his best plays. Okay. In my opinion, and the Night of the Iguana. I was going through a period, it was um, just before we went to rehearsal for Odette, where I was having, for the first time in my life, and and then I only had them for a few more years, Mm. but panic attacks, Mm. real Mm -hmm. panic attacks, Mm -hmm. which is way worse than an anxiety attack. Mm -hmm. The plot of The Night of the Iguana is panic attacks. The plot. (laughs) And I saw it when... I was in the middle of that with the production with Margaret Layton and Betty Davis. And mm-hmm. It was a terrific production. And um, it's a brilliant play. Mm. And this is a very... Well, Emily's directing it, mm-hmm. and she's put together a really good cast. And I, I play a man, a poet, who's a, a, 
approximately 100 years old. <laughs> what can one say? The table. Yeah, what, <laughs> I'm prepared for the comments that are going to come my way. Uh, and uh, but um, um, the um, it's a it's a it's a wonderful play. And where's it going to be? At the Signature Theater. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. And she's a great director. God, is she a good director? Mm-hmm. And and the um, and the cast. I mean, she puts these things together very. Mm-hmm. But it, and the same thing with the play out in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. That was going to. I think that play, the pianist, was going to move because it was very well received mm-hmm. in New Jersey. But now, with all this, mm-hmm. I mean, there would yeah. be bomb threats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be. You know. And so, um, but maybe one day that that'll come up. Yeah. It, it, she 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 did as good a job on that as she's as she's doing in this. Mm. She knows how to talk to actors. Mm. Well, that is a skill. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah. She, it's a combination of being demanding and supportive mm. in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular thing, and that, just apart from the craft of her work. Sure. Um, but she has that. And mm-hmm. in his way, Jerry Robbins had that, and mm-hmm. worked with a few other, and, and Word Baker had that, mm-hmm. yeah, all in their very different ways. Right, but um, and quite a few others that I've worked with, some not. Sure, but, <laughs> but what can one say? Right. Well, and, you've worked with a lot of people in your yeah. in your life, so I would imagine you'd work with all kinds in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I've never worked with anyone who I would call a bad director. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes you know, you, you don't work the same way. But that's as that's not the director's problem. Sure. That's right. your problem. That's, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> and um, um, and I, I mean my um, st- students say, say, what what do I do if? If the director's, if I feel I'm being directed badly, and I, my answer just finally become, do what the director tells you to do. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but what if, no, do right. what the director tells you to do. <laughs> well, that reminds me actually of the scene, because I listened to it on the train right up to it, the scene in Norse and Shadow when Wells is finally trying to direct Olivier. Yeah. And Olivier's trying to figure out how to dust. And he's just going on and on and yeah, on right. and on and on. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. And I love it. eventually ending in the great moment of Orson Welles saying, won't matter, no one's going to hear you anyway because of all yeah, the sound. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. However you want to say it is fine. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah, right. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Oh, Austin, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Patrick. This was, you're, you're a very good interview. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. You, you ask questions that one wants to answer. <laughs> That's good to hear. On the last day of my life, I am remembering a day in October with a cool wind blowing through your hair. On the last day of my life, I am
original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Austin Pendleton for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. I live to be a hundred. It is you that I'll remember, though there's nothing left when love is long gone. And I'll swear till I'm a hundred, I'll regret the day I left you, cause I might as well been dead from then on. For love you came to me, and there was nothing I could do, no one else that I could see. Love you came to me, and there was nothing more to feel, no one else could ever touch me. Robert!